Good morning. When I think about preaching, a lot of times I feel like a diamond hunter going down into a mine and trying to find treasure to to present to you on Sunday morning. The cool thing about it is I'm dealing with the Word of God that is all treasure. But it happens to be that today we're talking about death. Now, death is not something we like to talk about. We don't really see that as such a great thing. But death, as we all know, is common to all. Now, we see death and we say, you know what, something's wrong. We intuitively know something isn't right because we would rather see life. We ache over the pain of uh, lost loved ones. If you've had a relative die any time in the recent past, you know what I mean. And yet, as much as we don't like to admit it, we live in a culture of death. A culture that is fixated on death and hearing about death and seeing death and dissecting death and discussing death. And we find it hard to turn our face away from it. We're like the people that go past a car crash and we don't want to look, but we do want to look. And so, just like it's easy to get accustomed to all the crosses that we see and be desensitized to what happened to Jesus on the cross, the same thing can happen when we think about his actual death. What happened to him becomes easy to be callous to death and desensitized to it and then not grasp the enormity, the sheer enormity of what actually happened when Christ died. I want you to think with me today about death. And I want you to think with me today specifically about the death of Christ. So take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 27. And when you find that, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read verses 45 to 56. Whether you are 8 years old or 38 years old or 88 years old, God wants you to know and experience the blessing of Christ's death in your place. God wants you to dwell on the death of Christ, which really is a sovereign blessing. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli! Lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again, with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom, and the earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. 
When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is God's word, and let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that we come not to the word of man, but to the word of God, to your perfect word, which is a treasure. And Lord, I pray that we would have open hearts and open ears to hear your word today, and that you would bring about transformed lives in the process, all for your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Today we are going to look at the death of Christ and its effects. Now the death of Christ is central to the Christian faith. His death brings life. Therefore we preach Christ crucified. To some it's a stumbling block. Some are offended. Some call it foolishness. But we who believe know Jesus as the power and wisdom of God. We know Jesus as our very life. Today what I want you to do with me is explore the significance of Christ's death and what was accomplished in his death. The death of Christ and its effects. I think you need to have a healthy appreciation and understanding of Christ's death if you want to live a transformed life to the glory of God. You need to understand the death of Christ. Now today what we'll look at is why the death of Christ was so important. And then what did Jesus say when he was dying on the cross? And what did Jesus do in dying for us? And then lastly, what did his death accomplish? Now, last week we were focusing on what was done to Jesus and what he did for us in, as he was crucified. This is obviously very, very closely connected. We saw crucifixion as a providential atrocity. It was atrocious because of man's sins, but it was, it was providential because God planned this from the foundation of the world. We saw that they had messed Jesus up as much as he could be messed up and then crucified him, mocked him, and crucifixion revealed him as our loving God, our gracious, gracious Lord and the all-sufficient Savior. Today, what I want you to look at when we see Christ's death is that it is a sovereign blessing. It is God's doing and it accomplishes man's salvation. Now, when we talk about Jesus, we talk about him kind of through the whole scope of eternity, that he was preexistent and that he was incarnate, God incarnate while on earth, and that he was crucified and buried and risen, and he is returning, he is promised to return. But we also, embedded in that, we, we must get to the place where we say, Christ died. That's the beginning of the gospel, by the way. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Why is the death of Christ so important? Look with me at verse 45. It says that from the sixth hour, which is high noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, which is three in the afternoon. So from noon to three, there was darkness over the entire land. Amos chapter 8 verse 9 says, On that day, says the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon, 
and darken the earth in broad daylight, I will make it like morning for an only sun, and the end of it like a bitter day. Amos foretold that day. I like the way that Frederick Dale Bruner describes it. He said, In the darkness, the natural world puts on, as it were, widow's weeds, dresses in dark clothing, and goes into mourning. For here the human world has committed its most heinous crime. The Son of God came to it, and in response to the world's best religion and its most advanced government, combined to kill him. 9 a.m. in the morning is the time of the morning sacrifice. He was put on the cross at 9. High noon, darkness came all the way till 3 p.m., which is the time of the afternoon sacrifice. It was the time they would daily bring the lamb into the temple. Leviticus 1, verse 3 says, You shall offer a male without blemish. You shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting for acceptance in your behalf before the Lord. You shall lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be acceptable in your behalf as atonement for you. Here is Jesus on the cross, dying as the sacrifice, the Passover lamb. It's like John the Baptist. When he saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You might see the contrast here, but at Jesus' birth, there was light. There was a great light, a supernatural light. And here at his death, a supernatural darkness. God made it go dark. First three hours on the cross, daylight. Last three hours, darkness. Death of Christ is important. Now, why is it so important? There are all sorts of reasons why we could say that, you know, we have basically a cross as the primary symbol for Christianity, for following Christ. Through the years, many people have tried to get less, less deathly type objects to be the symbol, like a dove or a fish or things like that, but it remains a cross. Why so? The reason why is because that was in the heart of God. That was in the might of God. It was in the mind of God for the death of Christ to be central. Here's what you see all, all through the New Testament. Jesus clearly foresaw and repeatedly foretold his death. You can just look in Matthew's gospel. In fact, start with Matthew chapter 16. Go back to Matthew 16, 21. And Jesus over and over again is foretelling his death. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. On the third day, be raised. This is when Jesus was taken aside by Peter and Peter says, no, Jesus, you're wrong. That won't happen to you. Jesus called him Satan. He says, put your mind on God's interests. God's interests were that Christ would die. And it was planned before the foundation of the world. You go over and look in Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. They were gathering in Galilee. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. They didn't want that to happen. You go over in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. 
Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So over and over again, this was, by by the way, the third time that Jesus foretells his death. He is speaking of his death. That's why the death of Christ is so important for you to understand. Now, there's other times in the Gospel of Matthew as well. Matthew 17, after the transfiguration, Jesus says, don't tell anyone this vision until after the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Matthew 21, he tells the parable of the tenants, how these wicked tenants were killing all the messengers and finally killed the son of the owner. He's talking about himself. When he was anointed at Bethany, Matthew 26, he says, I was anointed to prepare me for burial. You bury dead people. His whole betrayal and arrest is all angling towards his death. You look in the Gospel of John and you find seven references to Jesus' hour. Hour pointing to his death. And then you get to the book of Revelation. I love it. The book of Revelation is big on the death of Christ. He is called in verse 5 of chapter 1, the firstborn from the dead. In verse 18, the living one who was dead but is now alive forever. Jesus is called the Lamb 28 times in the book of Revelation, not in reference to his meek and and mild character, but because he was slain as the Passover sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So he's called the Lamb, sacrificial Lamb. So it's very important. The death of Christ is in the mind of God as very important, so it must be in ours. Now what did Jesus say while he was dying on the cross? Look at verse 46. It's about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, it's the fourth of seven statements that Jesus made on the cross. Interestingly, Matthew only lists this one. Well, let's look at the others real quick. In Luke 23, you've got the first, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Another one in Luke 23, truly I say to you, and he's talking to the thief who believed, thief that is dying on a cross next to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. John 19, he takes care of his mother Mary. He says, woman, behold your son. And he's looking at John. And then to John, he says, behold your mother. From that day, he takes Mary into his home and cares for her as his own mom. And then we come to the statement, Matthew 27, 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll look at that in a moment. After that, he says, I thirst, recorded in John 19. This would be the reason why they gave him the vinegar on the sponge, on the reed. Also in John 19, he says, It is finished. His death proclaiming, mission accomplished. Salvation secured. And finally, in Luke 23, the words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Quoting Psalm 31. Traditionally, these seven sayings are uh, called words of forgiveness and salvation and relationship and abandonment and distress and triumph and reunion. 
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We're, I'm coming back into, into um, communion. But let's look at verse 36. I want you to look at that phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm going to take you back, sorry, but I'm going to take you back to English class and what you learned about nouns and verbs. What you hopefully learned is that verbs carry sentences. And the verb that carries this sentence is the verb forsaken. And so it's about this. The big question is, what does it mean? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's Jesus who keeps foretelling his death, who knows why he came to earth. So why is he asking this question? The primary reason is because he is quoting scripture from the cross. He is quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. I want you to go there because I want you to see it is the first part of Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 1. The Psalm of David. And it begins this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very same words that Jesus says from the cross. Now the, the next question is, then why did he quote Psalm 22.1? Now, if you think about Psalm 22, and you might want to keep a marker or your finger or something there, because we're going to come back to it. But the thing about Psalm 22 is, there's this huge contrast in, in the flavor of the psalm. It starts with a lament, starts in distress, but it ends in victory. It ends in praise to God. So you need to realize that first. The story of first being God forsaken and then being uh, rescued by God. Now this was applied immediately to David, but ultimately to the greater David, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, the New Testament contains 15 different quotations from Psalm 22 or allusions to the psalm that led the early church to call Psalm 22 the fifth gospel because it all angles towards the gospel. It all angles towards what happened to Jesus on the cross. So 15 different quotations of, of this psalm in the New Testament. What you'll also notice is this repeated Direct address of God, the noun, my God, my God, reflects hope in a seemingly, seemingly hopeless situation. You dig deeper, and when you see this psalm, what you realize is the psalm gets better. It starts bad, but goes good. It, it begins with a question, it ends with trust, a statement of trust. So you could see this as quoting God's word on the cross was an act of faith. It was pointing those listening and us to several things. Among them, the agony of his death, first and foremost. Him taking the full force of the wrath of God against sin upon himself. But also, as you journey through the psalm, what you find, it's a note of, of assurance. It is the surety of his victory, his resurrection. Now, I don't know if I've ever quoted uh, a... Uh, a study Bible in any of my sermons, but I'm going to today. I was laughing with some friends the other day, and I said, you know, the ESV study Bible explains this so well, I'm just going to preach that. So I am quoting from the notes in the ESV study Bible at this point, um, explaining this verse. I, I love the way it is done so well and so succinctly. E, uh, Jesus quotes Psalm 22, 1, 
Last two words are Aramaic, the everyday language spoken by Jesus. The first two could be either Aramaic or Hebrew. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's the note. Some of the most profoundly mysterious words in the entire Bible. In some sense, Jesus had to be cut off from the favor of and fellowship with the Father that had been his eternally because he was bearing the sins of his people and therefore enduring God's wrath. And there's lots of scriptural support for that. Then it goes on. And yet, in quoting Psalm 22.1, Jesus probably has in mind the remainder of the psalm as well, which moves on to a cry of victory. And he expresses faith, calling God, my God. Surely he knows why he is dying, for this was the purpose of his coming to earth. And surely his cry, uttered with a loud voice, is expressing not bewilderment at his plight, but witness to the bystanders and through them to the world, that he was experiencing God-forsakenness not for anything in himself, but for the salvation of others. Well said. Jesus is quoting scripture, Psalm 22.1. There are some who see this as what was known in the Hebrew culture as a Ramesh, where you would begin a scripture passage um, assuming that those hearing would know it or go to it and continue it on to its conclusion. Starting this psalm, and in, in it would, it's going to go all the way to the resurrection, basically. The victory of the resurrection. Look at me at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 Verse 21. The righteousness of God now has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. There is the death of Christ. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, a, a um, sacrifice. It's, it's the idea of the mercy seat. It, it, it takes away the wrath of God against sin. And it's to be received by faith. Also go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Well-known verse, verse 17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. It goes on, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He counted the trespasses against Christ in our place. So not counting the trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We're ambassadors for Christ, therefore. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And then verse 21. For our sake, he made him, God the Father made God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there's that idea that Jesus was dying for us in our place. Verse 47. Some of the bystanders heard what Jesus said and said, oh, he's calling for Elijah. 
kind of sounds like a weird thing to say, but in Hebrew, Eli sounds a lot like Elijah, so they're, they're kind of thinking, oh, he's calling for Elijah, but why would he call for Elijah? Why in their minds would they think that's okay? Well, according to 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah didn't die, but was taken up into heaven by a whirlwind. He was transported from earth to heaven in a tornado, basically. And the Jewish tradition was that Elijah would come to your rescue if you were righteous in your time of distress. So there was this thought in their minds like, hey, he's calling for Elijah to come and rescue him. So verse 48, someone goes and takes a sponge and fills it with sour wine and puts it on a reed, would have been two to three feet long. And again, I mentioned last week, but the cross is not, would not have been as high in the sky as our minds put it or as art depicts it. It would have been lower to the ground, three to four foot reed, handing it to Jesus. He gives, a, gives him a drink of this vinegar, shades of Psalm 69, verse 21 again. We don't know if it's mercy or mockery here. But we do know this. This is the cruel sentence, verse 49. Others said, hold on, let's see if Elijah will come and rescue him. So now they want to see the car crash. And they want to see if they're going to live or die. A cruel thing to say. Let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And then verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He died. It was a cry of anguish and a cry of victory. He's dead. What did Jesus do in dying for us? What, what did that death look like? What, what, what was it about the death of Christ that is so significant? I want to point out several things to you as it regards the death of Christ. Number one, Jesus died voluntarily. He said it very clearly in John that no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Jesus had to die. We, we were guilty. It was necessary. So he died voluntarily. And secondly, he died for us. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Titus 2.14 says he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So he died voluntarily and he died for us, for those who believe. And specifically, he died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15.3, I mentioned it. It's the beginning of the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He died because of our sins. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. And going along with that, he died our death. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. What we deserve, the wage we were going to get was death. And Jesus, in dying on the cross, died in our place. He died our death. It was substitutionary. He took the penalty. The last thing I'll mention is that Jesus died to bring us to God died voluntarily for us for our sins he died our death in order to bring us to god first peter three eighteen says christ suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to god so this is what jesus did in dying for us what we're going to see next in this passage though is what the cross actually accomplished the effects 
of Christ's death. Go to verse 51. Verse 51. This is what's going on when Jesus died. It says, Behold, and you know that every time that Matthew says, Behold, he's saying, Listen up, you need to hear this. Everything I'm saying is important, but this is really, really, really important. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. So there's this earthquake, definite notes of God's judgment, but also God's glory. And there's this curtain of the temple, this veil in the temple getting torn in two. There were two curtains in the temple. This is referring to the veil that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple. This was a big deal. You didn't mess with this veil. It was very heavily embroidered. It was not easily torn. It was elaborately woven fabric. It had 72 twisted plates of 24 threads each. This veil was 60 feet long. It was 30 feet wide. Josephus says that it was six inches thick. That it might have taken 300 men to put it in position. And the Bible says that the, the, the curtain was torn from top to bottom. It was being split as a sign that God had done this. God's hands tore the veil. It was signifying that a new and living way into the presence of God is now open through the sacrifice of Christ. Basically that free access to God is available in Christ. That's what this is signifying. Jesus opened the way to the presence of God by His death. Through His death. That split veil is saying two things about the temple. Two things about the temple. The first thing it's saying about the temple is that the judgment has happened. It, Jesus took the judgment upon himself for our sin. So he's saying about the temple, it's over. The second thing is salvation has been purchased, so it is open. The temple's over. Salvation is open. The idea is the temple worship is all over. The temple rituals, the law governing it was now obsolete. It's like, how many of you use a typewriter? It's obsolete, right? Some of you might use them, but in a land of laptops and other electronic devices, they're obsolete. How many of you uh, have recently listened to an 8-track tape or a cassette player? I'm not, I'm going to ignore that hand. My first car had an 8-track player in it and a cassette. We had both. It was awesome. Um, but in a world of MP3s and other digital uh, media, y- they're obsolete. Here's the deal about the temple. It was done. It was going to get destroyed, but it, it, was, it was over. Jesus is now the new temple. The meeting place of God and man is now the Lord Jesus Christ. The way into God's holy presence was opened up for all by the means of this one sacrifice for sins for all time. And there is a need to appropriate that, to believe that, to trust in that. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, begin at verse 11. Let's see what Christ did. Let's see what was accomplished. Therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, 
which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise. Separated, alien, strangers, having no hope, and without God in the world. That was the situation. But, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. See, the result of this free access to God being available now in Christ is peace. He himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He himself is our peace. Go with me over to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews talks a lot about the death of Christ and how he is greater than the temple and greater than the sacrifices and greater than anyone and everyone and anything. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 Let us now with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We are coming into the presence of God without fear now. When you come to faith in Christ, you are now at peace with God. He has taken away your enmity towards Him. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. The inner place behind the curtain, the one that was torn, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Go over to Hebrews chapter 9. All through this chapter, it's all about Jesus. It's all about the the blood of the covenant, the new covenant. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. One more, Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He who promised is faithful. You see, there is free access to God because of the death of Christ. You're no longer locked out. No more restricted entrance. Everybody with proper credentials can come in. Those proper credentials are trust in the finished work of Christ, the shed blood of Christ. You are clothed in His righteousness and then you are free to come. Because Christ's sacrificial death blots out sin He conquered the powers of evil and death and he opens up access to God. That is what happened when Christ died. And you can have peace. Look at verse 52. What else happened? The temple of the curtain was torn in two and tombs were opened up. Now you got got graves being opened up. 
See, what you see here is the spiritually dead are given new life. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs. After his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. We don't know exactly how, what, what the timing of this was. Matthew is not uh, completely chronological in his accounts. He is thematic. He's probably pointing to the resurrection since he is talking about the resurrection here, coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. I'm not a fan of zombies at all. I don't go watch any of those movies. But what would you call these people who were dead and were raised to life and came out of the tombs and went into Jerusalem and appeared to many after the resurrection, but the living dead? In Christ, you are alive to God. God brings the dead to life in Christ. Jesus' victorious resurrection, His vindication, promised to all who believe. Get this. Mark this down, that you have a final resurrection. You will be resurrected. That what you are going through right now in life is not all there is to see. It isn't the whole story. I want you to think about this. We say it so often. God poured out the wrath against sin, His wrath against sin on who? Say it louder. Jesus. He poured out the wrath against sin on Jesus. So what does that mean? Have you ever thought about what that means about you? For you. If you believe. God poured the wrath out against Jesus. Which means that the wrath will not be poured out on you. It was poured out on him. That's good news. We don't even understand. that It's the biggest understatement in the world. (laughs) Wow, I'm so glad the wrath of God isn't coming upon me because of my sins. And, and we are so used to saying that, we don't realize that it took the, a death, the death of Christ, to bring it about. Spiritually dead are given new life. But look, I know what's going on here, okay? I know what's going on here. We all woke up this morning, got dressed, and came to quote-unquote church. And we're now sitting in a room together and hearing the word of God. But in the midst of that, everything in your life is intertwined into some big muddy mess. And there is love and hate and marriage and family and relationships and broken or whole and work. And there's health and unhealth and there's drugs and there's sex and there's addiction and there's pornography and there's desires and there's great things happening and there's bad things happening and everything mixed into the mix and you come here today and you're carrying some of the baggage like i've said before some people very obviously others hide it really well well let me ask you a question where do you go when you are in the depths of discouragement or depression or despair where do you go and let me ask you another question what do you do when everything is going awesome everything's working out uh, there's a uh, you get a touchdown with every pass you 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 uh you get paid more than you thought you were getting paid everybody loves you there's no problems what do you do with that you're like well i'd love to see that right <laughs> here's the thing you can't lift yourself out of the depths of despair nor can you keep yourself up at the top of the mountaintop Jesus 
is going to promise something at the very end of Matthew. He's going to say, you know what? I am with you always, even at the end of the age. That's the last word of Matthew. By the way, we're going to get to that, the Lord willing, on December 8th. But I can't rescue myself out of trouble, nor can I keep myself prospering. But Hebrews 13 tells me that God has said, never will I leave you, and never will I forsake you. So that should lead, in my life, and in your life, in my heart, and in your life, to a little thing called contentment. Say, you know what? I don't have what I need today but I'm going to be content with what God has given me. There are plenty of people that will say, you know what, I just don't like my situation right now. And they will complain to God. And, and guess what? The Jews didn't have a problem with that. The Psalms are full of complaints to God. But it's where you take it. Psalm 22 starts with a lament, ends with praise. In Christ, the spiritually dead are given new life. And one more thing I want to point out to you. Look at verse 54. It's about that centurion. He's kind of famous because of what he said, which is basically like signing his own death warrant. Truly, this is the Son of God. But I want you to notice something here. We always hear about this centurion who said this, but look at verse 54. Look at it closely with me. Just do a plain reading of the text here. When the centurion and those who were with him not just the centurion, those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus. Why were they keeping watch over him? So that his followers wouldn't come and steal him away. When they saw the earthquake, we know this in California. We remember earthquakes and what happened during them. They saw the earthquake and what took place? Rocks splitting they hear about either the temple right away or they're somewhere, they're, they're in the vicinity. And they were filled with awe. And then they said something. They said, truly, this is the word for amen, it's the way it is. Truly, this was the Son of God. They're proclaiming the deity of Christ. They're proclaiming Christ as Savior and Lord. Truly, this is the Son of God. And then verses 55 and 56, there were women there, many of them, looking on from... The disciples weren't there, but the women were there who had followed Jesus from Galilee and were ministering to Him. Praise God. Among them, Mary Magdalene and mother of the Mary of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. There's adoration to God. There's praise to God. You know what that tells me? There's hope for mockers. Are you a mocker? You mock God? Were you a mocker? Well, here we have many mockers turning into confessors. And by the way, in, a mere, in mere days, 3,000 plus people would believe. I'll tell you what really strikes me about this passage and what really blows my mind is all these testimonies. I love it, all these testimonies. And you're like, what testimonies? Well, I only see the centurion and, and, and those who are with him. Okay, I, I will give you that. Those who are with him. So what are you talking about all these testimonies? I'm talking about the veil. The veil in the temple was testifying that Jesus is Savior and Lord. The, the rocks, the earth, 
that he made was testifying that he is Lord. The tombs, tombs are opening up. People are dead, people are coming to life. They're testifying that God is God. And, and then the centurion and his friends, they all have got a testimony about Jesus. It's all directed towards Jesus, it's all about him. Do you have a testimony? Most of us know testimony as, well, that's that thing you, don't you like write something up and kind of make a paragraph about what your life was like before you knew Jesus and then, and then you write a paragraph about what your life was after you knew Jesus and what he's done in your life and make sure you don't talk too much about what you were like before but really highlight Jesus. So much more than that. First of all, do you have a testimony? You say, what are we talking about? I got the piece of paper. I wrote it down. It's in my head. Do you have a testimony? Now, there's two parts to your testimony. There's an initial testimony. That's what most of us think about. Oh yeah, how you came to faith in Christ. That's just the start of the story. Do you have a testimony? Do you have an ongoing testimony of the greatness of God in your life? Do you know how many people I know will say, yeah, I got a testimony. I became a believer when I was, you know, seven years old. But my life stinks today. It's not a testimony. That's like cursing God almost. It's like, give me something else. Is there anything going on today? Are you alive? You're breathing? Praise God. Here's the interesting thing. You look at these, 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 these effects of, of, the, of the death of Christ. Free access to God is available in Christ. Well, that's obvious. God did that. Uh, the spiritually dead are given new life. That's obvious. God does that. Christ is proclaimed as Savior and Lord, and people go, oh yeah, we do that. Well, actually, actually, Go back to Psalm 22. And we're going to close with this. Go back to Psalm 22. I'm going to show you something here. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Verse 12. Many, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths. The ravening lions. Dogs encompass me. Company of evildoers encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. Verse 24, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. Do you see that? The confessions of Christ as Savior and Lord is enabled by God. It's from God. He, he initiates it. He instigates it. Your heart praises God is because God gave you that. Put it all back to Jesus. Give him all the praise. Your life is in his hands. We are all tempted with fleshly choices, but don't forget the price that was paid. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Lord God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Thank you, Lord, that the book of life belongs to the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And if our names are written in there, it's because he put us in there. 
And thank you, Lord, that Jesus, the Lamb, occupies center stage today and will forevermore. In Christ's name, amen.